Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled. It's where we break down concepts from cutting-edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Kathleen Masterson. All right, so it's been a few months since our last podcast, and there have been a few changes. First, you'll notice that I have a new co-host. Unfortunately, we had to say goodbye to Michelle Matus, but now we get to say hello to Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Paul. You know, this is actually really exciting because Kathleen is actually the Reynolds Professor of Science Communication here at the University of Nevada, Reno, and has covered science, environment, and agriculture across the country. So, Kathleen, thanks for joining us. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So what do you want to talk about? How about groundwater contamination? Absolutely. Uh, But first, uh, it might sound a little basic, but we should probably get a base understanding of what groundwater is. Sure. Good idea. Especially important here in Nevada. Essentially, we're talking about any water below the Earth's surface. It's held underground in soil, crevices, um, parts of rocks. And believe it or not, this stuff is super abundant. Nearly a third of the Earth's fresh water comes from underground reservoirs. Here in the U.S., we use nearly 80 billion gallons of groundwater every day. That's more than a quarter of the total water used. But a lot of that water is under threat, and perhaps the biggest threat comes from overuse and depletion. But a close second might be contamination. And that contamination can come from a variety of sources. Pesticides and fertilizers that are sprayed on the ground are among the biggest pollutants. And in recent years, there's been a growing concern about the chemicals in pharmaceuticals and personal care products. But sometimes those contaminants can be naturally occurring. One place contamination has really begun to take a toll is in California's Central Valley. Home to millions of people, the area is among the most productive agricultural regions in the world. And at more than 7 million acres, it produces more than half of the fruits, vegetables, and nuts consumed in the U.S. And with such a high concentration of agriculture, it may not come as a surprise that many of the chemicals that were used to treat fields and orchards for um, pests and fertilizer are now appearing in groundwater. One of those chemicals is actually called 1,2,3, all right, hold on, 1,2,3-trichloropropane, otherwise known as 1,2,3-TCP. You know you want to sing A, B, C. Every single time. Every single time I hear that, I want to sing A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. Just like the Jackson 5. All right. But I'll stop him. Carry yes, on. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. So unlike the 70s pop song, the chemical is not a good time. 1-2-3-TCP is a known carcinogen, and it's only been within the last couple of years that the state of California began regulating the chemical and how much of it can be in a community's drinking water. So it sounds like that is not naturally occurring. Not at all. But we do know how it got there. For that, we turn to Todd Robbins. He's an environmental lawyer with Robbins Borgay Law Practice in San Francisco that deals almost exclusively with this type of water contamination. It was an ingredient in a set of pesticide products. There's really two main products, kind of like Coke and Pepsi, competing products that were very similar to one another in both in terms of purpose and, 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 and formulation. One made by Dow, one made by Shell. The Dow product was called Talone. And they actually make a uh, more purified version of the product, uh, and for groundwater purposes anyway, a safer product today called Talone 2. And then Shell's product was called DD. Um, and, and these products both contained TCP as an impurity. It was completely unnecessary ingredient. It provided no benefit to farmers. It was just a byproduct of their manufacturing process. And since the state began regulating how much of the chemical can be in the water supply, More than 220 wells have tested over the limit. Obviously, that's not good, but Robin says it can't be treated. 
the good news with TCP is that it, it can be removed from the water um, using a pretty standard drinking water treatment technology called granular activated carbon, or GAC, uh, which is essentially the same technology that you, you find in most, most uh, refrigerator filters and Brita filters, those, those kinds of things. It's basically charcoal um, and car act, uh, organic material, uh, including TCP, will uh, adsorb or stick to the charcoal particles as it goes through a, a vessel full of this media and take the TCP out of the water. Filtration systems sound expensive. It really is. As a matter of fact, it's cost prohibitive for many of the communities in water districts in the area. That's why many of those municipalities are taking legal action and suing Dow and Shell for their role in the contamination. But, you know, not every single lawsuit ends up as happily as uh, the Aaron Brockovich, for example. It's not that easy to to prove where the contamination come from. And that's why Robbins relies on somebody like Rena Schumer. She's a hydrogeologist, somebody who actually studies groundwater and how it moves through those underground geological systems. She explains how something like TCP can actually end up in the groundwater. We need to apply more water to crops than they're going to use so that we can make sure that salts and other chemicals don't build up in the root zone and keep the soil nice and fertile. So approximately 10 to 30 percent of the water that gets applied at the surface by design infiltrates below the root zone, taking with it any agricultural chemical that might have been applied at the surface or that might be sitting there in the root zone. So those agricultural chemicals essentially get flushed down. Um, In terms of how long it takes for them to reach um, water supply wells depends on a number of factors. First is it depends on how the, the depth to the water table or the surface of that saturated zone I talked about. So in California Central Valley, which we were discussing, um, that depth can be somewhere between 100 and 400 feet. So that makes a huge difference in terms of the initial time it takes for chemicals to reach down to the water we pump for our water supply. After that, we also have to think about simply the horizontal distance from farms to well. Now, the big problem comes in with the fact that aquifers, even though they have all these little pores, chemicals don't just move through those pores like pipes. You can think of an aquifer more more like a sponge. So let's say I have a sponge, and it's totally dry, and I dip it in a bunch of dye, right? Um, and I, you know, squeeze it so that the, uh, the sponge soaks up as much dye as it possibly can. Well, you can imagine that let's say I now squeeze that sponge and a bunch of the dye drips out. And then maybe I, you know, put that sponge in some clean water and take that water in. If I squeeze the sponge again, the water's still going to be red. And if I repeat that rinsing over and over again, it'll get lighter and lighter and lighter But, you know, we can all intuit that some of that dye is going to be stuck in the sponge. And maybe each time we squeeze it, we'll get a little more out. Well, we can't really squeeze an aquifer in that way. And pumping a well is kind of an analog to squeezing the sponge, but it's not quite as forceful. And you can imagine all that, um, any chemicals that are sitting in that aquifer 
might release a little bit of a time, a little bit at a time, but really it builds up in there and it's very difficult. You can't just flush it out. In this case, the example is really clear cut. There's a contaminant, there's a known cause, and there's a fairly straightforward solution. But that's not always the situation. As a matter of fact, there's a perfect example of how complicated determining the extent of groundwater contamination can be in our own backyard here in northern Nevada. Right. So about 80 miles southeast of Reno is Yarrington, Nevada. And it's a small agricultural community with a little more than 3,000 people. And just to the west of the town, less than really a mile, sits the Anaconda Copper Mine. Opened in 1918, the mine closed in 1978, and now it's mostly abandoned. So Kathleen and I decided to take a drive and check it out. It's kind of eerily quiet up here. There aren't any birds or insects. So we're essentially standing in a caged-in overlook, and below us is the mine pit where they pulled out all the rock and copper. And according to the sign over there, it's about a mile long, half mile wide, and more than 400 feet deep. And right now it's completely filled with this deep blue water. Uh, behind us is the old company town of Weed Heights, which was built to support the mine and its workers. And, and now it looks, it, I mean, it's, it looks completely abandoned. Yeah, all around us are these huge rock piles where they dumped waste rock and other piles that are tailings piles of things that were leached for copper. And nothing's growing there. They're kind of moon-like, and it's a fairly alien and dead environment. I don't know. I think the better word might be post-apocalyptic for me. It's it's pretty eerie, and, and part of that really is because we have this ongoing contamination that nothing can grow. And, you know, we're audio people, so when we stop and listen and hear nothing, it's, it's a little creepy for us. So, uh, one of the classic ways the mining industry can and has contaminated groundwater is through what's called acid mine drainage. It basically means acid used in the mining process, or acids that leach out of the waste rock, drain into the groundwater. The problem is that leftover acid comes into contact with naturally occurring chemicals and contaminants in the ground or in that waste rock, and then it sort of dissolves those pollutants and carries them down into the groundwater. This problem was particularly prevalent in the early half of the last century when regulations about what to do with mining waste were basically non-existent. And it's something that chemists Glenn Miller and John Hatter, both from the Great Basin Resource Watch, have been studying for a long time. They actually joined us on our trek to the mine. Here's John Hatter. For many years, there were people, the, the people that operated the mine said, well, the uranium is naturally occurring. You hear that all the time. Well, of course it is. It's in the ore. But the mine operations mobilized it. It's a little hard to hear. But what he says there is that the uranium is already in the ore. As a matter of fact, it's in just about everything in the natural world. And that's exactly where it would have stayed if the ground were untouched. But beginning in 1918, this area was mined. And the biggest extractions occurred in the 50s and 60s. And then there's been even more on-site processing in the 80s and 90s. So all in all, various mining companies extracted enough rock to create a pit a mile long, 400 feet deep. They dug out the rock, crushed it, used sulfuric acid to leach those gravel bits and then extract the copper. Then they piled waste rock and tailings on top of the ground. So when it rains or snows, anytime that there's water flowing over that rock, it comes into contact with acid and the contaminants are then washed into the groundwater. Here's Glenn Miller. Most of those minerals still are at the, bo at the bottom of those evaporation ponds and will have to be managed at some point. And if there's any, you know, and as it, as you, as what little precipitation does occur is on those ponds as well. And as Glenn was saying, there's a kind of a concentrated layer, and that water sinks through and, and carries some of those materials 
some of those minerals with it as it goes through. So it's a combination of those things. So some of the groundwater has been affected by the mining operations. The levels of, of uranium, sulfate, and, and arsenic probably wouldn't be that high if it weren't for the mining operations. Now there is elevated, there are some of the wells in the area do have elevated uranium and uh, arsenic. Uh, not as much so as sulfur, but there is some of that anyway. And, that's, and, that's, and that is the way it's always been. But in the early days of investigating the site, and we're talking about 10 years ago or earlier, it wasn't clear whether that was from the mine or not. Now it is clear. We know that the mine definitely contributed to groundwater pollution. One way the government figured it out is they installed 360 groundwater monitoring wells in the surrounding area, and they tested the levels of arsenic and uranium. And those wells let them see where concentrations of these heavy metals are higher than would be expected naturally. And that's how they started to define what's called the plume. It's basically an underwater seepage area of contaminated water. And prolonged exposure to things like arsenic can have pretty devastating effects, including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, partial paralysis, even blindness. Now, there's no evidence that actually happened here at Anaconda, but some residents north of the mine have wells that tap into the contaminated plume. So, as a precaution, in 2004, the mining company started distributing bottled water to residents whose wells were contaminated with high uranium. Then in 2015, mine owners Atlantic Richfield, which is a subsidiary of British Petroleum, paid about $19.5 million to settle a class action lawsuit brought by about 700 residents living north of the mine. And despite that settlement, some things could still change for the mine's neighbors as new science comes out. Uh, now, the mining company issued a new report saying the underground contamination plume isn't as big as it was previously thought. So that could mean, depending on how the state and everyone settles this issue, that certain residents may no longer be eligible for bottled water service if they can't prove that the uranium in their wells comes from the mine. So let's explore just how scientists are trying to determine if uranium and arsenic in the groundwater came from the mine itself. One interesting way they could actually figure out that the plume um, was specifically from the mine is that the mine used sulfuric acid to leach copper out. That's what they did. They dug out these rocks, um, they got kind of a pile of rocks, and then they would leach them with sulfuric acid. They, had to, they made that sulfuric acid on site, and they made it with sulfur from the Leviathan mine in California. So that, interestingly, has its own specific isotope. Back to uh, high school chemistry here. An isotope is when there is a different number of neutrons. Um, so with, because some of that sulfate made it into the groundwater and leached alongside some of these chemicals, um, if wells, if you know, you're know you a person north of this area and you test your groundwater drinking water and you have that same isotope, then we know that water from the mine was reaching you. Here's John Hatter again. The, the sulfur that came from Leviathan, you get an isotopic signature of that sulfur, <coughs> sulfate. And if you see that... You know, out in out out in the uh, where the groundwater collect where you're monitoring, then there's a connection there. Uh, and there's a lot of dynamics that go on underground, you know, as part of the process. But that's one of the ways that they kind of track where the water's from is often with isotopic analysis. But the tricky thing is that water doesn't always move uniformly. Like if you took a glass of water and dropped one drop of purple dye in the middle, it would spread out in a uniform circle. Naively, for people who are listening, can you paint a picture of what is an underground water plume? What is? What do you mean by that? Oh boy, boy, that's a <laughs> that's a that's a t that's that's a tough one. Um, the because um, because under um, 
a lot of people, when they can kind of picture a water, kind of a water aquifer and water table, they think of this sort of uniform body of kind of saturated soil or underground. That's kind of not the way it is because especially in a state like Nevada where you've got a lot of mountain building that's going on. So there's fractures, there's different geologies. So water tables are not even. A lot of times there's discontinuities in the water table. It doesn't, it's not uniform everywhere. And that means that the water flow is also not uniform. It may hit a spot where there's a fracture and it stops or it may flow through a fracture. So it's uneven. And, and so what they've done here at this site, which what they do at most sites, is they have a number of layers. So they have like the, the top layer, the shallow zone, called the, what's often called the alluvial aquifer. So that's this, all this, this loose gravel and stuff you see around here is the alluvium that's come off of the mountains. And, so that's, and that's the aquifer that probably is tapped by most of the domestic wells in the area. And there's also many layers to the underground aquifer. It's not like one big sponge, but it's, it's more like many different underground sponges. Most domestic wells around Yarrington tap into the top layer, the shallow zone in the first 100 feet or so. But the geology underground of the mine and surrounding area is way more complex. So water doesn't move in a straight line. So one big question is not only how far does the contamination reach, but how to stop ongoing contamination from the mine waste. The site's about nine square miles, and there are huge piles of waste rock on top of the ground. There are also evaporation ponds, and that's where miners dump treated rock, and then they drain out the sulfuric acid because they want to capture that again and reuse it. It's expensive. But those ponds were either not lined or they were lined with material that degraded. How does this affect the residents? I mean, they have to be drawing their water from somewhere, right? Yeah, um, definitely. The, it, it's been shown that some of the resident wells are definitely tapping into the contaminated plume. Another concerned community here is the Yarrington Paiute, um, and their tribal lands are a bit north of the plume. So there's not concern that there's direct contamination of most wells, from what I'm told. Um, but they do have really great concerns about just leaving this kind of pollution on the land, having this kind of contamination in the groundwater. And um, even though right now it doesn't look like there's any leaching into the Walker River, there's just concern of not wanting to contaminate a lot of these natural resources. So one person who's been following this really closely is Chairman Lori Tom. She's the chair of the Yarrington Paiute, and she is very savvy and knows all the mining situation, all the mining terms and how this stuff works, um, but has really been advocating for uh, the tribe um, to get some of this cleanup happening. These are our cultural and traditional lands. These are our sites where we've held gatherings. These are from the lands from where we came from. And as Paiute people, we want to make sure those are protected and that there will be clean water in that aquifer for generations to come. In the meantime, what can be done to mitigate further contamination? One of the challenges is that anytime they have water, rain, or other kinds of runoff from the mountains, that's where we're getting that infiltration of the contaminated water. So one of the remediations that they are talking about and haven't really done extensively is to add basically topsoil um, and then grow plants. And so that when water would fall on these rock piles now covered in topsoil, um, it would be captured in the soil, not infiltrate down. And that would reduce a lot of the runoff into the groundwater, into the aquifer. But that's, I mean, that's got to be super expensive, right? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the challenges. If, if you're going to do this right and add sort of two to three feet to really um, have enough soil to support the plants and to capture any runoff so it's not reaching the contaminants, not infiltrating those down into the deeper groundwater, uh, the cost really adds up. Glenn Miller, 
Well, the problem areas are throughout the entire site. There's uh, all of it supposedly has to be reclaimed, meaning you have to uh, put on topsoil or some sort of growth meeting on the top to get a, a, a something growing, so you reduce the dust and potentially reduce the amount of water that's infiltrating into the site. So the entire site is a problem. That water that's draining out of there, it's a, it's a low water area here, but there's still going to be some water draining out that's very acidic and is going to have to be cleaned up. And this is going to go on for decades, if not centuries. But, I mean, is that the only thing to prevent further contamination? That is one fix that can be done on a wide scale. Another thing that they're actually starting right now, we did see some bulldozers when we were over there at Anaconda, is they're digging um, new ev- evaporation ponds that are geographically below, sort of gravitational-wise, below some of these contaminated piles. And so then with pipes and pure gravity, they can move some of the can- that contaminated water into these newly created evaporation ponds. And the idea is that, you know, the water will evaporate and then you're left with kind of a thick sludge of the actual contaminant, but it's something you can control. So that's one other form of mitigation that they are actively working on. A more, even maybe most expensive form of mitigation that um, done in a long time there is they can actually pump out the groundwater, treat it, and then, you know, release or pump it back in. To add yet another wrinkle to all of this, and, and mind you, we're only skimming the surface here. There is continued debate on how far the contamination plume actually spreads, whether or not it's moving and, and who's responsible. There is no question that the mine has contributed to those elevated levels of uranium and arsenic in the groundwater plume, although it is something that the state and BP for a long time kind of uh, contested. That's Daniel Rothberg, an environment reporter with the Nevada Independent, who's been covering the issues related to this mine and contamination. The plume is quite large. My understanding of the groundwater plume based on the background groundwater quality assessment is that the plume is about 350,000 acre feet and 400 feet deep. 350,000 acre feet, just to put it in perspective, is more water than Nevada is entitled to from the Colorado River every year. And the water in Nevada belongs to all the people of the state of Nevada. It's a shared common resource. It's an important resource to sustain life. And I think it should be a concern to everyone to have that contamination. You were talking about the controversy over the plume, that it's, yeah. it's difficult to delineate. Um, we sort of roughly know where the edges are potentially, but mm-hmm. delineate who's to blame in certain sections of contamination. Can you talk about what are the legal ramifications that for that? How are they going to make that determination and figure out who's going to pay for whatever mitigation we end up doing? It's a good question. I can't completely answer it because I, I'm not sure that we entirely know yet. So the, the state is overseeing the cleanup through the deferral process. So basically deferring a Superfund listing, the state is sort of taking charge. A lot of it depends on what the science says and what the studies say. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the interplay between the company, Atlantic Richfield, and the state and how each side kind of looks at the groundwater situation. I think obviously, and we've already seen this to some extent, Atlantic Richfield is going to argue that the mine is responsible for a sort of much smaller percentage of the plume. And it will be interesting to see whether or not the state pushes back on that. So in the meantime, as the state regulators and the mine's owners continue to hash out exactly how much contamination has occurred and where, 
Affected residents will have to continue to deal with the consequences of mining more than a century ago. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Science Distilled. If you have any questions or comments, let us know. You can shoot us an email at feedback at KUNR.org. Be sure to tune in next month as we learn more about what some people are doing to bring more diversity to STEM fields. We also want to thank our partners. Of course, a big thanks to the Desert Research Institute and the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum, both in Reno. They run the Science Distilled Lecture Series that this podcast is based on, and we couldn't do this without them. And I also need to thank the Hitchcock Project for Visualizing Science for supporting uh, the important work of science communication. Until next time, I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Kathleen Masterson. Thank you.